Hey friends, welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Dylan Bowman, here today with Mr. Cole Watson, the champion of the Canyons 100K, which unfolded in Auburn, California last weekend. Cole is now local to the Auburn slash Sacramento area, but he grew up in rural Oregon. So we begin by talking about his upbringing and Oregon running culture broadly. We talk about his frustrating collegiate career, his exposure to trail running upon moving to Ashland. We talk about some recent adjustments he's been making to his training, the Canyons race execution. We look ahead towards Western States and a lot more. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Big gratitude as always to Speedland for being the presenting sponsor of the show. Big ups to our guy, Speedland athlete Don Reichelt, who's out suffering on the Cocodona 250 course right now in Arizona. Speedland founders Dave and Kevin are there in person, living the brand and supporting Don on his quest through the desert. It's been so fun to follow and it sounds like the product is performing well in this ridiculous race. Make sure you grab a pair of the GS Tam, my signature shoe with the Free Trail Signpost logo on it. Visit runspeedland.com and use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off your purchase. A reminder that these shoes are made in limited quantities. So once the GS Tam sells out, it disappears altogether. So make sure you grab a pair while supplies last. If you enjoy what we do here at Free Trail, you would love becoming a member of Free Trail Pro. I guarantee it. The global community for passionate trail runners around the world. Join the Free Trail Slack group where more than 750 trail runners enjoy fun digital banter about the sport and life in general. Use our catalog of training plans, which are completely free for members. Enjoy deeper discounts with our brand partners and a lot more. It is now the month of May and a couple of our OG community members, Matt Van Dalsum and Ari Sonnenberg are putting together a fundraiser for Memorial Day. At the end of the month, Ari is a combat veteran for the US Army and an incredible person who does a feat of endurance every year around around Memorial Day in honor of his fallen fellow service members. Last year, the Free Trail community raised 2,500 bones around his effort. And this year, we wanted to open it up to the public. So it would mean a lot to me if you, the amazing Free Trail podcast audience, would consider chipping in and getting involved in this initiative. All proceeds go to the Wounded Warrior Project, which we are proud to support. So you can find a link to that in the show notes if you want to support the fundraiser. Thanks so much for being here. Hope you enjoy the episode. Cole Watson, you champion. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm a big fan of all you guys are doing and it's an honor to be on. Well, it's an honor to have you, and uh, obviously we'll start in, in the appropriate place. It's been uh, four days, I think, since you broke the tape as the champion of this year's Canyons 100K. How's the body? How's the mind now that you've had a couple days to rest? Yeah, you know, uh, right afterwards, I went over to one of my crew members' house, and I finally was in peace and quiet for a few minutes, and I was starting to get a little bit nervous. I was like, oh, wow, what did I really just do? You know, this this is pretty close to States. Um, you know, what, you know, was my appetite bigger than I, than I thought, um, or my eyes bigger than my appetite more. Um, but you know, now I'm kind of off death's door and, uh, I feel a little bit better. I'm moving around. Uh, you know, it, it helps to win and to have a good race and have all those feelings and emotions flooding through your blood. But, uh, I, I have to say, I, I feel the best, you know, a couple of days later than I have, you know, in a lot of my other races. So I'm excited. Okay. Well, temper that feeling of wanting to get back to it for a little bit. Obviously the fitness is there and we'll talk more about the strategy now in the eight weeks between canyons and Western States in a little bit, but it was great to see that victory, man. It was so well-deserved. And I think there was a lot of people whose, you know, whose lives you touched, you know, there was a lot of people rooting for you out there who, uh, felt that victory with you, myself included. We don't even know each other that well. And I was so happy to see you win. And I feel like there probably are a lot of people who maybe heard your name for the first time or are new followers of yours. So obviously we'll come back and talk more about Canyons in a bit, but in an effort to set the context a little bit and introduce you, one of the 
devices I've been using recently is posing a semi-introspective question to our guests here on the podcast. And that is just what makes you, you like, what are your unique character traits as a human being that have served you or strengths or weaknesses that make Cole Watson the man that he is? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I hope that these don't come off as like a subtle flex or brag, but, um, and, and, you know, I think maybe they are, you know, they're, they're definitely strengths, but at times they can be, be weaknesses too. Um, but I, I really feel like I'm a really persistent individual and I'm super detail oriented. I mean, I'm, I'm a hardworking nerd of the sport, you know, like yourself, like a lot of people, um, I'm a coach, um, so a lot of my daily life is Strava and stats and miles and um, sometimes maybe a little bit too much. But, you know, I just I show up day after day. I dust the I dust myself off. I don't miss a lot of days. Um, my, you know, my coach, my new coach, Brett Hornick, he says I'm kind of like Ron Burgundy. Anything you put on that teleprompter, he will read. And I do, I do everything. And, you know, I put my trust in everything that I do in my coaches and everything they've told me. And that's the way I've always been, even since high school and college. That's a fascinating thing. I'd love to go a little bit deeper on that. Obviously, that comes with probably a lot of benefits in your run training as an athlete to be persistent, detail-oriented. Is there ever Mm -hmm. a moment where it becomes a curse where maybe you overthink things or allow that oh, to get in your own way. Yeah. Most definitely. I, I am sometimes my mind is my own worst enemy. I'm I, I really overthink things quite quite often. Um and I just have to remember that that's the reason that I do have a coach. And that's why I tell all the athletes I coach that it's important to have a coach. You sometimes need somebody to push you and sometimes you need someone to hold back the reins and um you know, uh, it's just to have another pair of glasses on things or people looking through a different lens is invaluable. Yeah. Well, I want to talk more about Brett and your guys' coaching relationship and how your training has evolved recently, because I feel like that's rich territory for conversation, but maybe talking about your background a little bit more. Of course, you live in the Sacramento, Auburn area. You were the local legend taking that victory home today, but I know you're a native Oregonian. So maybe tell us a little bit about your background and the role that running has played in your life. Yeah. I mean, running has, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's given me something to chase and work towards. It's, it's where I've met a lot of my friends through my lifelong friends. And, uh, it ultimately it just opened up a lot of adventure, uh, to myself, but, uh, yeah, I grew up in Rogue River, Oregon, which is a really small town, uh, in Southern Oregon, kind of, uh, near Ashland, uh, which is a good trail hub in the state. But, uh, I ran cross country and track and, uh, I was fairly successful in high school, won several state championships. Um, and then I went to the university of Oregon and, uh, I had a, I had an average college career. I mean, uh, that school brings in the best runners from around the world. Uh, every single year, my my class that I was in, I think every one of us did end up ultimately running post collegiately uh, for a brand. Um, and uh, yeah, I unfortunately didn't have any any brands knocking at my door when I got done. I, I bounced around in events a lot. I I ran the eight hundred, the fifteen hundred, the steeplechase. Um, you know, just kind of bouncing around trying to find out what was best. But I was. I never broke four minutes in the mile. I think maybe my best time in college was 343 in the 1500, which they say equates to a four minute mile. Um, but, you know, I, I just, uh, yeah, I didn't have those, those opportunities or those offers. So I, I went back home and I started coaching cause I just wanted to stay connected to running. And I, the opportunity opened up to, to coach at a community college uh, in the rogue Valley where I'm from. And, I did that for a couple of years and I was working at uh, Rogue Valley Runners, the, the trail running store in Ashland on the side. And yeah, um, yeah, that's where I met Brett and Ryan Gelfi and David Laney and Hal and, and my wife, Jocelyn, ultimately she was working there too. That's so funny. I want to talk more about that, but tell me more about growing up in Rogue River because for those of us who've done the drive between Portland and San Francisco, which I've done a dozen times probably, 
I've driven past it, but never stopped and enjoyed it. And it's a pretty (laughs) rural place in Southern Oregon. What was it like growing up there? And like, was running part of the culture in Rogue River, Oregon? Because, I mean, this is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is just like the significance of running in Oregon sporting culture more generally, because I think for people who haven't spent any time there, it may not be obvious like how deep and rich the tradition and history of running is in the state. So maybe tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in rural Oregon and, and yeah, speak a little bit about that tradition of running. Yeah. Rogue river is a small place. I think, you know, it's uh, the high school only I graduated. It was like 250 kids in the high school. It's a junior, senior high school. It's, it's very small. That's tiny, um, man. That's tiny. Yeah it's, yeah, it's very little. Um, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of trails in Rogue River. You know, everybody would go over to Ashland, and um, or you would, you know, you'd commute. There's a lot of driving in Southern Oregon. Uh, you know, if you go to the grocery store, it's going to take you 30 to 45 minutes. Um, but uh, it was as a kid, it was it was kind of boring. Um, but in hindsight, I do miss it because it was rural and you could kind of just do whatever you want, get into whatever kind of mischief, you know, outdoors that you wanted to do is different living in Sacramento now, but, um, the running was a lot of logging roads. Um, you know, and in hindsight, I didn't, I didn't really know what it was really preparing me for, but long extended climbs, you know, um, going up and down those logging roads and, and long descents, you know, a lot of the runs were just you know, up a few miles and down a few miles. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a peaceful place to grow up. Not a lot of kids, a lot of older folk, um, but a lot of great role models and, um, Rogue River, actually the high school, uh, does have a a pretty rich history in cross country and track and field for their division. They're one of the they were one of the most dominant programs in the small school divisions in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, the only cross country team to win four state titles consecutively with a group of freshman girls and they were sophomores and then juniors and senior years, they won four years in a row. So wow. that was a really special time, but that was, uh, I think early nineties. Um, so I came in 2005 or something or 2006 and graduated in 2010. So what about the running culture in the state of Oregon more generally? Like, have you read Shoe Dog and like... Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I mean, Nike has its foothold all over the state. And I mean, a lot of that has to do with people like Phil Knight and Steve Prefontaine. And when I was in middle school and I started running, my mom showed me the the Steve Prefontaine movies, you know, that they made. And I was so into it. Um, I'd played football, basketball and baseball up until that point, but then got into middle school and I felt like I was kind of like pre if and people have seen that movie where he tried out for the football team, but like he was too small. Um, I, I've been about the same size most of my life, but like in middle school, people were just getting bigger at that point in time. I went out for the football team, but totally got rocked in tryouts. I was like, I don't know. So I, I went out for cross country and, you know, just kind of chased the prefontaine dream of, you know, running at Oregon ultimately. Yeah. Which you did. Was it unusual <laughs> for someone to come from such a small high school environment of 250 kids to go race at a program with the stature of the university of Oregon? Like, did it feel as if you were achieving a lifelong dream to go race for that legendary program? Yeah, most, most definitely. I mean, in middle school, I, you know, I, I thought like, oh, I can do anything, you know, and then in high school, my first couple of years, I wasn't that successful. And I kind of was worried that I wasn't going to be able to make it there. But then things started clicking and I started getting stronger and faster because, you know, running so cumulative, things yeah. added up and I had the opportunity to run there. And uh, the first time I stepped on that campus and saw that track, it was like, kind of like Disneyland, you know, that sort of feeling. And it was just so magical and I could just feel the history and, you know, the aura. And I was, I was starstruck and it took me a while to, to get a little bit comfortable there. Um, you know, not that you want to take a place like that. That's so special for granted, but at some point you got to like stop being such a, a schoolboy and, you know, focus, you know, a little bit more. Yeah. So not to harp on this, but I, 
the culture of running in Oregon is so interesting to me. And obviously you've mentioned Steve Prefontaine, but it, it, it feels to me like it preceded Prefontaine and it preceded Nike. Like, do you have an understanding about why the Oregon Ducks, even before pre, like with, I think Bowerman was the coach and their program yeah. was already very good. And there's just so many people who love running in the States. And to me, it feels yeah. like a bit of a mystery aside from the fact that the climate is really nice for year round running. And yeah. yeah. And, and I think yeah, you know, yeah. there is some momentum that builds over decades, but after reading shoe dog, which I just brought up, it feels like obviously that Portland is the perfect place for that collision of running culture with product. And it feels obvious that Nike, you know, has sort of, become the sportswear giant that it is, but it was born out of track and field. It was born out of that running culture in Oregon. Yeah. 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 You know, it probably had a lot to do with the bills. There was a lot of bill coaches at the university of Oregon. Bill Hayward was the first one. And, uh, Bill Bowerman was the next bill Bowerman was from Southern Oregon. He went to North Medford high school, which is in between Rogue River and Ashland. And, you know, I raced against a lot of black tornadoes from North Medford over the years. But uh, yeah, you know, Bill, he kind of started jogging, the the idea of jogging in in the 70s. And, uh, you know, he introduced that to track town. And, um, you know, the school gave that town so much to root for and so much to do. Um, You know, there are no more knowledgeable fans in the sport of track and field than in Eugene, Oregon. That that stadium is had, you know, it would have more people than my high school football games. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that that has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, the university of Oregon and the ducks, they, they definitely popularized running. And it must've been so fun to extend your running career collegiately at the university of Oregon. And to your point, for those who've been to Hayward field, and I went to the world championship there in July, with uh, Andrew Bumbelow, who's a former professional runner for the Bowerman Track Club yeah. and who now works professionally for Nike. And it it's just like, it feels bizarre, right? Because Eugene is actually, I mean, it's two hours away from Portland. It's like kind of hard to get to. And then there's this world-class track and field exclusive facility in Hayward Field, which is sort of newly renovated. And it's a beautiful place to enjoy the sport. When you and I were doing one of our panels at Canyons over the weekend, you said something that you've repeated here and that you had a great high school career, but you were average collegiately and average at the University of Oregon is still very good, but it felt to me that it carried some frustration with it. So describe your collegiate experience. Yeah. You know, I think it could just be like my naivety and, uh, just being a little bit young and immature, you know, just kind of comparing myself to my peers a little bit more than what matters. Um, but yeah, my, my collegiate career, is just, uh, I never could really find a rhythm. I was always trying to do a little bit too much, trying to run a little bit too hard in between workouts. Like every time I failed, it was like the next race was like, Oh, this is going to be my redemption. And it was just, I was always biting off a little bit more that I could chew. Um, and I just really, was having a hard time finding out how to, how to train, um, and race, uh, you know, sustainably. And, uh, it's, uh, a little bit of a, a doggy dog world, you know, when you have 10 other teammates that can run sub four, um, and you're the 11th one that doesn't, um, it's, it can be a little bit demoralizing day to day. Was it frustrating for you? Did it compromise your enjoyment of the sport or were you always dedicated and in love with I mean, at, at times it, it definitely was compromising, uh, my enjoyment. Um, there were moments when I talked to my coach, uh, and I had a couple coaches, I had Vin Lanana and Andy Powell, uh, and, uh, I, I talked to them about stepping away and, and, you know, doing other things. Um, but they, they believed in me, you know, they, they believed in my ability to work hard and, and to stick to it. And, uh, they, they, wouldn't let me. Um, and you know, we had a few conversations about that and I'm really glad that they didn't. I mean, by my senior year, I finally started, things started to click my junior and senior year. Uh, I, w- I started improving, but I, 
I PR'd in most distances my freshman year and then nothing until my junior year. And, and then I took some, some bigger leaps, but, um, at that point in time, it, it just wasn't quite enough to extend my running career, like being a, a professional miler or being, you know, and I had no aspirations to run a marathon or an ultra marathon at that point, you know. Do you have more happy memories from that period of your life or is it more complicated emotionally? Because there's sort of like a running theme in the podcast and conversations that I've had with people who have raced at a high level collegially and that they have mixed feelings about their collegiate racing careers and that, you know, coming into trail running has breathed new life into their enjoyment of the sport again. How do you feel about your collegiate career now that you're have been removed from it for almost a decade? I I'd have to say the same rings true for me. It, it's mixed feelings. Um, there is a lot, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I felt like people from my hometown were putting a lot of pressure on me because I was so successful in high school. I, I think after my sophomore year, I didn't lose a race in high school. So it was, it was difficult to never come close to winning in college. Um, but, uh, yeah, I miss, I miss my teammates. I miss the trips. I miss the meets. I think it was like the actual races, um, that were really difficult for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, um, yeah, I think that now in hindsight, I wish that I would have not put so much pressure on myself. I would have been a lot less stressed out and I probably would have raced better. That's probably a lesson that you'll continue learning over and over in your life. And I want to come back to that because it sounds like you do put a lot of pressure on yourself still to this day, but we'll get to that in a bit. This episode is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition and the new salted margarita flavor of Gnarly Hydrate made with extra sodium, 500 milligrams per serving to be exact. As we head into the summer months, hotter weather means more loss of fluid, means greater need to supplement electrolytes. You guys know I am an electrolyte evangelist. Sodium, magnesium, chloride, and potassium are critical for proper hydration level, nerve function, muscle function, and body pH all important stuff for performing at our best out on the trails. Guys, this product might be my favorite gnarly product of all time. You must give it a try. Delicious margarita flavor, some savory saltiness to it, and all the electrolytes and B vitamins you need, especially for us salty sweaters. As they say, it tastes like the real thing, but it won't make you dance on the tables and it won't make you wake up with a headache. Gnarly Hydrate Salted Margarita. Find it at gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15. You mentioned that nobody was like knocking on your door after your collegiate running career, but a lot of your teammates were going to race professionally. Where were you in that point in terms of your running journey? Like, were you at a bit of an impasse where you were confronted with the fact that maybe this wasn't going to be a big part of your life? Um, yeah, it, it was a little bit weird after, uh, my last race collegiately, it was at the university of Texas at the, the regional meet at NCAAs. And I, I didn't make the final and I was just like, wow, I guess that's it. After, you know, 10, 11 years of doing this every single day. Um, what am I going to do now? Um, but I, I kept running, you know, I, I went, I got up and I ran the next day. Um, and then the day after, and I, I just ran like 30 minutes a day for a few months um, until I decided, you know what, I, why don't I just try to, you know, do something different, you know? So I decided I was going to do some longer road races and try a half marathon and things like that, um, which ended up actually working out pretty good and ultimately spurred me to try a a full marathon and, and some of those ultra stuff. Yeah. So going back to what you said earlier, we published a little bit of a written interview with you on freetrail.com prior to Canyons last weekend. And you talk about moving to Ashland and how important that moment was in your running career and also sort of provided the transition between racing on the roads and discovering the trails. I wanted to ask you specifically about Hal because he was one of my heroes when I found uh-huh. the sport. Of course, you worked at his running store, the Rogue Valley Runners. 
Maybe if you can share anything about Hal and his character that the listeners might find entertaining who may be newer to the sport and not familiar with him and, and any influence he had on you as you made that transition. Well, he, I mean, he was the best boss, man. He, uh, you know, he really, he, he had, he's had a lot of talent running wise come through that, that store. And he definitely accommodated us for how, you know, to train and to travel to races and, uh, you know, would, would build the schedule around us. And, uh, I'm forever grateful for that because I also was coaching at the community college and I was trying to run a lot. Um, so yeah, he, uh, he's just a very, uh, generous individual. Um, and he, and he knows how to have a good time. He sure does. So in addition to yourself, if we think about the alumni at Rogue Valley Runners, we've got what Gelfie, Ryan Gelfie, David Laney, Brett Hornig, Anton Krapichka, Timothy Olson, Kyle Skaggs. Uh, who am I missing there? I mean, it's sort of like a Hall of Fame alumni yeah. at Rogue Valley Runners in the trail running space. Totally. I mean, there's a couple good track guys too. Jared Hickson was an NAIA champion in the 1500. Uh, Eric Avila was, uh, you know, he, he runs for Adidas still, uh, as a miler. Um, there, there's some fast folks. Uh, there's some, there's some good ladies that came through too. Uh, Jessa Perkinson, she's an NAIA champion as well. There's a, there's a good running program at Southern Oregon university yeah. as well. So a lot of folks work there, but yeah, that's funny. So I asked you on the pro panel and I'd love to have you just kind of repeat it here about your wife, Jocelyn, and you guys met there at the running store too. And I think she was more into the trail space and was part of the inspiration of like opening your eyes to what yeah, could be what, a potential career to build within this new category of the running world that you'd been so intimately tied to for your whole life. Can you talk about Jocelyn and just that, uh, that moment and sort of sharing that journey together? Yeah. You know, she, she grew up in the Sacramento area. Um, and then she went to college at, at Southern Oregon university. So she was already a fan of Western States. And when I was kind of in that transition period of figuring out if I want to do road races or some longer trail races, uh, she definitely uh, spurred me on to, to give it a try and, you know, and just like helped me get stoked and fired up about the opportunities that, that, that trail could provide me just maybe the, the less, uh, a little less pressure than the track and field and road worlds tend to put on on some folks and and how accepting and inclusive the, the trail community is and jocelyn ran gorge this year didn't she she did yeah she she's done a couple hundred k she's she's just trying to get her uh, her lottery spots and um yeah she's she's just an avid fan of the community and the sport and she she loved gorge yeah and i know you paced her like the last half marathon of that 100k which was in horrendous weather so anything you want to want to share from that and just like more generally i think it's probably pretty special i mean my my wife is a runner but you know she's she's not racing 100Ks, and but she's like deeply involved in the community and we love sort of sharing our passion for the sport together. And you guys have a similar thing. And I think a lot of people who listen to the show have something similar with their connection with their significant other and, and that being tied in a lot of ways to their love of the outdoors and the love of the trails. So any stories from the last half marathon of Gorge or anything you want to share about your guys' journey in the sport together? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have too many uh, from the last half of Gorge, um, it was, it was tough for, and like you mentioned, the weather was, we got it all that day. There was even, there's, there was rain, snow, sleet, uh, some hail, uh, a little bit of sunshine <laughs> there. It had it all. Um, but she, uh, that was, that was huge for her because she tried her first hundred miler at Rio del Lago last fall. And it, it, kind of the weather snapped and got pretty cold and wet and she she ultimately dropped because she couldn't stay warm so so gorge was a big one for her to conquer and you know it was cool to be there for her uh, during that and to you know kind of help pepper up a bit but uh 
we're we're extremely lucky. Me and her share a lot of the same passions. I think she got me a little bit more into trail running and I've kind of forced her to get a little bit more into fishing and we <laughs> both love to backpack. Um, so we, we do a lot of long backpacking trips in the Sierras and um, I always uh, make her bring, bring a pole and we're always on the hunt for different fish. And uh, it's just, uh, it's really unique, you know, that we both represent uh, the same company. She, she works for, in a full capacity and of course i'm sponsored by them as a runner but um it's just really it's fun to just you know sometimes it's a little bit too much running a little bit too much hoka but we love it and uh it just it's a it's a really lucky uh relationship that's so good i want to move to your training but before we do you mentioned fishing and backpacking and I've noticed a theme in all these conversations that I've had that sometimes it makes perfect sense where people end up, you know, Adam Peterman, for example, freakly, you know, talented, insanely gifted individual athletically, but he grew up sort of hiking around in peak bagging with his old man in Montana. Uh And so marrying that talent with that outdoorsy streak, it makes total sense that he's a world dominator on the trails. And it feels like similarly with you, did you have that like kind of outdoorsy streak to you as a kid? Did your kid, did your parents expose you? Like, are they the ones who uh, gave you the passion for, you know, fishing and, and long backpacking trips? And does it make sense to you now? Like being such a great trail runner specifically? Well, yeah, I, I had a little bit of a different upbringing as a child. You know, my, my grandparents essentially raised me mm. and uh, my mom was off working a lot. Um, but my grandfather, he, he taught me how to tie my shoes and drive and he took me fishing. And, um, there's a lot of, a lot of outdoor things to be done in rural Southern Oregon. So yeah, we, we did a lot of that growing up. Um, and it just, uh, I'm so lucky that, uh, my wife and loves to do that stuff too. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk about your training a little bit. One of the things that stuck out to me in our conversations over the weekend was, the fact that you seem to have made an intentional decision to do less volume in your training, you said you wanted to get more out of the hard days and that sometimes you maybe were behaving like a Strava superstar and that you were showing up to races sort of flat, having expended the important energy in training, of course, when it matters a lot less. I'd love to hear you talk about that conversation with Brett, your coach, how you guys arrived at that necessary adjustment. Yeah. I mean, he more or less just told me to quit being a show off. Um, And, uh, you know, he's right. Uh, It's, it's fun to run really fast and it's fun to get a lot of kudos, but um, what's more fun is having successful races and, and, and winning ultimately. Um, cause for, uh, someone as competitive as myself, that is a big reason that I, that I run these races is to, you know, fulfill my potential. Um, and that just happens to be winning. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we toned things down uh, a little bit, not, not a ton, but it was just more focusing specifically on like, each race and taking it race by race and like what that profile was going to be asking of me at different times of the race and at different times of the day. Um, so I've just gotten very more detail oriented than I already felt that I was. If I think I'm detail oriented and, you know, or somebody thinks I am, then they haven't met Brad Hornig. Um, that guy is a madman when it comes to stats and, and details. And, uh, he is, he is the king of running nerds as far as I'm concerned. Um, but we, I mean, we've been friends since I moved to Ashland and it just makes it a lot easier to put my trust in him. Um, cause I know he believes in me. Um, and I think that that was, that was the crux. You know, he told me like, you are too good to be doing these hard, um, one-off workouts all the time. Um, and they just don't make sense. It's too much time spent in this gray area. Mm. Um, and you know, I think that that was, also what transitioned into the racing is like if you break it into kind of four quarters a lot of times i've gotten a little bit antsy in the first and second quarter of the race 
and it's just a little bit too early in these these long long races and um ultimately uh you know making a move or letting people fall back to you it's not even necessarily a move that you need to make in something this long people will just come back and you just keep doing what you're doing is there insecurity in reducing that workload because if we're looking at some of the guys you were competing against, Adam Mary, Matt Daniels, those guys have been throwing together 130, 140 mile weeks. You're doing great work, you know, but sort of high 80s, low 90s. So we're talking 30, 40%, you know, decrease in training compared to what those guys are doing. And obviously you're somebody who does want to compete for the win. I don't know if you're observing what other athletes are doing, but was there any maybe feeling of friction or insecurity about toning down the overall training volume and not doing those hero workouts? Oh, I mean, I'd just be telling a bold faced lie if there wasn't. Um, I think as competitive as I am in my own mind, I, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of what other people are doing and we put it out there now on social media and Strava so much, but um, yeah, I, I didn't really want to do that at first, but you know what? I've, Kind of come to a point where I've been running out of excuses. I've been running races all different types of ways my whole career. I've I've done a lot of volume. I've done really awesome workouts on paper, but it just came to a point where, you know, I needed I need some more help. I needed like a different pair of eyes on things. Um, I had to let go of of some of my ego. Yeah. Awesome. So maybe to talk more specifically, obviously we made a training video with you showing your last big workout before canyons. It was about 10 days out before race day and you did a 90 minute warm up followed by five by three minutes uphill with some power hiking in between the intervals. You were talking about how it sort of helps with fatigue resistance, your sort of glycogen depletion going into the intervals with that long warm up. I'd love to hear you talk about that method specifically and how often you do those types of workouts, because I've noticed not only yourself, but other athletes doing similar stuff. Um, yeah, to be honest, I mean, we've done a lot of that, that, that type of workout is probably, um, the, the, the most frequent one that me and Brett go to some form of it. Um, just doing a longer warm up, and then sometimes I'll do some flat, you know, like K repeats or three minute, you know, intervals or something like that. Um, and then other times I'm going to do a long warm up with uh, longer hill repeats and then a quicker descent, and then, you know, maybe a jog recovery at the bottom, and then do another hard uphill and then a quicker descent. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the hill intervals with a, with an uphill hike recovery or sometimes a hard recovery. And then another repeat, that's the kind of stuff that's just been a game changer for me because I've, I think coming from the track and road world and, and for whatever reason, not being a good steeplechaser in college, when I tried it, I was, I was a good miler 800 runner, but um, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a rhythm runner. And uh, that has been the hardest part about trail running sometimes is when you have to switch to, using like these muscles that require you to hike and go back to running it, it has thrown me off. And, um, I've started to get a lot more comfortable with that. Thanks to some of these unique workouts. Yeah. So last time I saw you prior to this weekend was at black Canyon. And you mentioned earlier that sometimes you struggle, maybe asserting yourself too early in races before we start talking about canyons where it feels like you really found the right balance. I'd love to just hear your reflection on Black Canyon. Does it feel like a big missed opportunity for you? I mean, or, at this point, no. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, like I should it. say, or did it, <laughs> did it feel that way prior to this past weekend? Um, it did. I mean, I, I did my best with what occurred. I think that you know, me and Brett talked about how the race had played out in the past and we can watch a lot of that now, thanks to live streaming and stuff, but studying um, the game film, dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it's there, I mean, we yeah. do a fool not to, Hell but, yeah. Hell yeah. um, yeah, you know, we, we wanted to go out uh, with the leaders, you know, but I, I don't think that he necessarily wanted me to kind of 
find myself in the lead before 20 miles. Um, because when you take the lead, if you want to admit it or not, I, I really believe that there is a certain levels of stress that come on you. You are now the hunted um, and you are not the hunter anymore. And I feel like I do a lot better being the hunter. Um, so to put myself in that position didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I, I do think that I might've been able to keep it rolling, uh, if I hadn't been just pumping in too many carbs per hour, which is something that I just recently figured out, um, because I never really understood like the long endurance sports nutrition stuff very well. And the biggest change between black Canyon and canyons was, consulting a sports dietitian and really getting some scientific backing to why I should be doing what, you know, we should do. Say more about that. So you're saying that at Black Canyon, you were taking in too many carbohydrates and that negatively impacted your race? Yeah, I basically just overeating. I mean, every 30 minutes, you know, I was, um, I was fueling. And then it, when we broke it down and did the math, I was trying to consume about 110 per hour with the drink that was too concentrated and the gels. And I know that that's some 110 folks, grams of carbohydrates. Yeah. So not 110 calories. Yeah. 110 grams of carbohydrates. So that's a lot. That's, you know, most people I think are saying that like elite athletes can do about 90 per hour. Um, so I, I went way down. I mean, I did it like 70 per hour at, at canyons and it kept, it just kept my energy more even keel. I was never really too high and never too low. It's just uh, a lot more even. That's interesting to me as somebody who doesn't really pay attention to those metrics as much in training or racing that you're paying attention more to grams of carbohydrates than calories. Can you explain that difference? Yeah, I think that, and maybe that's just something that's changed in the last few years. I think a lot of folks, you know, in literature and stuff used to promote like counting the calories and knowing how many calories you, you know, it's basically like gas in the tank. It was just, that was the metric that everybody used. But now I think things have switched more to looking at carbohydrates per hour and the grams of those. And uh, I mean, studies, more and more studies are being done. I think at one point they thought oh, only 60 grams per carbs per hour is what you needed. And then a couple of years later is 70 and a couple of years later it was 90. Uh -huh. um, but the dietitian I worked with, you know, she assured me that, 110 was probably too much. Yeah. I could do it in a four hour training run. It's what I did in training. Yeah. Um, but that's only four hours. And like I was getting six at I was getting sick at six and eight hours. And, mm -hmm. and at Western States, I got very sick at 12. Um, so uh, yeah, it was something that I didn't know for sure if it was going to work going into canyons because I wasn't doing long runs that were more than four hours. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. This episode is brought to you by HVMN and their Ketone IQ Supplement. Ketones are important macronutrients with clinically studied benefits for increasing energy and focus throughout the day. Ketone IQ is brain fuel, naturally increasing your blood ketone levels in just a simple, handy two ounce shot. The perfect thing to throw down the hatch whenever you need an extra boost, either in your training or in your daily life. My wife Harmony and I have become really enamored with this product, honestly, between running our business business, my increasing training load and being parents, we've been operating at full capacity for a long time. I had specifically become overly reliant on caffeine throughout the day until I started taking this product. And I have to say it has really helped me to feel more focused and energized. And especially in my training, I have been having a ketone IQ shot in the mornings before all my long runs. And it really does help me feel steady energy for hours on end, even when the baby has kept me up at night. This stuff has evidently become really popular in cycling and is just now being discovered by runners. So go check it out. You won't be disappointed. Visit hvmn.com. Look up the ketone IQ. Use code FREETRAIL20 for 20% off. hvmn.com. Use code FREETRAIL20. So let's talk more about canyons now before we get to the race execution. You said something in our post-race interview that made me want to ask you to expand on it here. And that was that you had a conversation with your father-in-law the night before the race where you guys, it seems like, visualized what might happen on race day and it kind of played out exactly as you had predicted. Can you bring us into that conversation? 
Yeah. I mean, he was just kind of ask, asking me, you know, who was in the race and, uh, and, you know, where I was going to be, when was I going to be? So maybe they could come out and watch. And, uh, I got talking on what I wanted to do and, you know, sit back a little bit more, maybe in like 10th place, uh, and kind of be a more of a stalker. And, uh, I, that's ultimately what happened. You know, everybody got out kind of quick through the, the neighborhoods of Auburn to get on, you know, so they weren't bottlenecked on the single track, but then we were walking up training Hill and, I think I was in about 10th place running with Adam and Matt Daniels and, and David Laney was there. And, you know, we ran all the way through mile 14 uh, aid station together. And, and then uh, we kind of all got in a groove on the ALT and Adam Mary was leading that train and it felt really good and smooth. And we eventually caught uh, David Roach and uh, uh, Seb's failure at about 30 miles. Uh, and then uh, kind of Matt moved up and put about five minutes on us, I guess. That's what yep. someone at the no hands aid station told us. But when I got to no hands at 36, 37, it was exactly how I envisioned feeling. And I was, I was in second place. Basically I was the first one to leave the no hands aid station uh, with the exception of Matt, you know, being up ahead. But um, I, uh, I knew that from mile 40 to mile 48, it was going to be the hottest time of the day for us uh the leaders and it was going to be the most exposed and the most technical and the most vertical gain that we we're going to cumulatively get um so i knew that was going to be a hard section for everybody um so i i really believed that i was going to catch somebody somewhere around there and i caught matt at 43 um and then i didn't just press on the gas and in the past, I think if i smelled blood in the water i would just go you know hit hit the gas and be like i'm gonna I'm going to take this one to the tape, yeah. you know, uh, maybe, maybe count my money when I was still sitting at the table, yeah. but, uh, you know, I just kept doing what I was doing, stayed calm, stayed relaxed. And, uh, I heard that after I left driver's flat, uh, that Justin Grunewald had made, made up some time, you know, and he was close. Um, but I, I knew that that back section was the shadiest part of the course. Those last, 13, 14 miles with the exception of the climb up to, up to Roby, I uh, was slightly pitched downhill. I do that loop a lot or variations of it almost every day. Wow. Um, so I knew exactly what effort I could put out. Um, and, uh, it was definitely motivating when I got to other aid stations, Clementine and no hands to hear that my lead was growing. Um, and, uh, very exciting. Uh, I, but I didn't, I didn't start celebrating until <laughs> until I, I rounded onto High Street, man. Yeah, because I, there's been times. Terrified. I mean, how many times yeah. has it been that you've been like at least in the golden ticket contact, and then it slipped away from you at the last second? You that was probably haunting you for that last half marathon. You probably thought, "Oh my yeah. God, Adam, Mary, and Justin Grunewald must be like ten seconds behind me." You must have been looking Absolutely. over your shoulder. Absolutely. I mean, I have so much respect for my peers because you know, we could all run that last section equivalently. I think if we had the legs to do it, if we took that, that first part of the race appropriately, you know, we could all move pretty good. It was just a matter of like who got there first and who didn't like, you know, blow all their money basically. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's happened a lot. I mean, this was my fifth attempt in a golden ticket race and I've been I've been uh, fifth, fourth, and third twice, and I've lost contact with the lead in the last 10 miles of all of them. Um, so it was definitely um, something that I didn't want to happen again. That's interesting. <laughs> so it was closing the deal, sealing the deal that's sort of eluded you. Is there anything yeah. you can point to about how you were able to do that successfully at Canyons last weekend? Um, I think just slowing down, you know, and staying even keeled, uh, more than halfway through the race, mm. not ever getting too excited about how things were developing and never getting a little too low if I wasn't feeling so good. Um, yeah. I mean, the nutrition stuff clicked really well for me this time around, but every 45 minutes as it got warmer, I started to want to push things back. And my coach, Brett told me, don't be so rigid. Don't set a nutrition alert on your watch 
don't, you don't have to eat every 45 minutes. Like yeah. if you have to eat 50 minutes or you even have to wait till an hour, just do it. But I was, I managed myself really well, got into aid stations or I found the creeks and got cooled off. And yeah. It's fascinating, man, because it speaks to the importance of emotional steadiness. And with athletes of your talent, sometimes that's the key to success, right? And I just had Adam Peterman on the show and we were talking about, you know, his emotional steadiness and people in his life like Mike Foote identify that as being his unique differentiator or the thing that makes him truly great is that he sort of like has that moderation in just like how he's approaching racing and the sport in general. And I think if you look at somebody like Matt Daniels, he'd probably say that he didn't have the emotional steadiness early in the race. Like he tried to assert himself a little bit too much. And obviously, you know, sometimes you got to take risks. Sometimes you got to, you know, go with your instinct in that competitive moment. But I mean, for you, I think that maybe is a really good learning experience to just sort of like, have that emotional steadiness, have that belief in yourself and confidence that it is a long race and you got a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. I think that that was the key. Uh, a lot of the races that I've done before I've checked out my heart rate at the start and you know, it's been up a little bit higher than I would have liked, but, uh, but at, at this race, it was, it was down pretty low. It was, it was around 70 beats a minute standing up and I was, I felt good Feeling about calm. this one. Yeah, that's, calm. That's, yeah. that's awesome. So again, we published a little interview with you prior to the race. And one of the things that you said is, I've raced a lot of different ways, aggressive, conservative, and it's probably time to find the appropriate balance of both those uh, of both those to occur. I have to know when to hold back, when to go, and for how long, and how extreme to apply those two tactics. It's time for me to fulfill my racing potential. You talked about race management before, you know, between, you know, pacing, fueling, hydration, taking risks when you need to, heat mitigation on the day. Anything else you want to share about the race management component and the balance between being aggressive and conservative? Yeah. It, I mean, it's a teeter totter thing. I mean, like there's times when it's a bit of a roller coaster, you know, it just, low moments come when you won't expect it and you just have to, you know, keep believing and, you know, that things are going to turn around or, or keep believing that when you, when you get cooled off, that your stomach's going to come around. Um, keep believing that for no, no change in what you're doing at all, you'll start feeling better. Yeah. You know, it's just, I think that the events are so long and there's so much time and so many variables that can change. Um, and, you know, a little bit of luck has to come your way too. Um, but if you, you know, set yourself up for success by controlling what you can control, then, then I think it, that luck will roll your way. Yeah. No <clears throat> doubt. So we talked about how this was the best race of your career in our post-race interview, 14 minute margin of victory. It was pretty convincing against a really stout group of athletes. You said before that you're really hard on yourself you're a perfectionist. You're your own biggest critic. Do you allow yourself to celebrate after these big victories? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely am soaking this one in, you know. And I'm, uh, I am, I am really hard on myself um, sometimes too much. And I, you know, that's why God's blessed me with Jocelyn. I think is to, you know, keep me realistic and put things into perspective day after day, and you know, and tough race after tough race, you know, I, she's assured me that those, those tough races don't last, but tough people do tough runners do. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just really thankful that I have the, the friends and the support system and the community, uh, in my corner that I do. Can you tell us a little bit about when you two became reconnected? Because Jocelyn wasn't able to share this victory with you, at least physically in person. She was out working for Hoka, the Big Sur. Yeah. When you guys got back together, what was the feeling like? Yeah, of course, her knowing how much you'd been through and how much you wanted this one. Uh, it is. It was awesome. You know, I, of course, we we the first thing we did was have a huge embrace, and it it felt like the the first uh, like 
big international race that she ever saw me do. She, before we were even married, she went to uh, Italy with me when I was on the world championships team. And uh, I ended up being the last scoring member of the team and we got silver and it was just really a cool moment. And I just, it was a very hard race. And I just remember as soon as I finished, you know, all I wanted to do is just kind of collapse in her arms. And, um, and so that's kind of, that's what it reminded me of, you know, is, uh, finally, finally getting to see her and just like finally relax, you know. Oh, that's beautiful, man. And I'm sure she'll be there at Western States for you this time. No more other Hoka events to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she'll she'll be there. Yeah, no doubt. She's not going to miss it. Heck yeah. So now let's talk about Western States. Obviously, there is a period of acute recovery that needs to occur here, and it's a pretty delicate thing. I mean eight weeks between a hard effort like what you've just put out on Saturday and one of the biggest races in the world at the Western States 100, a place where I'm sure you want to put your best foot forward. What signals are you looking for from your body to let you know that you're ready to get into this final block before Western States? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, there's no plans to run at all this week. Um, I think that uh, I had a short buildup before Black Canyon. I think it was six weeks. And then I had eight weeks between Black Canyon and Canyons. And Brett's a smart guy. I mean, we we definitely were really conservative for a week or two. And then we would get in only a few quality weeks. But they were really, really quality weeks. Um, and he's definitely set up the structure to be building off of each other. I think he took a little bit of a gamble. I, I guess this is how much he believes in me, but he thought that I really had a chance to, to get a golden ticket into States. And he didn't want, he didn't want the block to be so big and so massive that, um, that I was just cooked after, you know, racing my way into States. So, um, you know, we haven't really deep dived into it too much, uh, of what, you know, the contents of the training is going to look like, but I think first things first is, it's just making sure I can get back to running and that all systems are go. There's no weird muscle stuff and that I just don't feel totally depleted and out of whack. That's really interesting. So he was intentionally moderating the training before canyons with the hopes that it would leave room to do a little bit more work after canyons before Western States. Yeah. 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 I, you know, and I, I think that that takes a lot of guts, you know, as totally. a coach and, coaching a, an athlete that, you know, is putting a lot of trust in, in his coach and has the goals that I have, you know, um, it, it was a lot on his shoulders, but I mean, he's definitely come through for me. And, um, I don't necessarily know if we're going to start running more than, than what I have been doing. I don't think that that necessarily makes a whole lot of sense. Um, but I think just, uh, you know, maybe just working on some of the elements of the States course, like those long extended downhills, um, you know, some of the elements that we worked on in the first half of Black Canyon, you know, because like the first half of that race is very long and, and, and downhill. So I think that uh, we might see some of that and, and definitely get exposed to the heat a little bit more when it makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. We'll be watching your Strava to see what you do. I was going to ask you that, you know, like what happens now? Do you change the stimulus? Do you start doing longer reps? Do you get out on a course? Are you adding volume, et cetera? But we'll let that be a surprise for after you have the in-depth conversation with your coach. Yeah. Let's just briefly, before we wrap up here, I'd love to hear you reflect a little bit on your sixteenth place finish at Western States last year. I'm sure there's a lot you can identify that you can do better, but maybe what specifically are you looking to improve on the Western States course this year? And maybe share any reflections or learnings from what happened on the course last year. Yeah, you know, it might. I mean, maybe not to you, but to some folks. Um, that haven't run as many hundred milers. I had a great 80 miles. Yeah. Like I did exactly what I wanted to do for 80 miles all the way to the river. Yeah. What um, were you were like what eighth or seventh I was, at the river? I was 13th. Like 13th. I think I was 13th at the, at the river. And I, I wanted to be knocking on that door, you know, of, of top 10. Cause that's, that's what I thought I was capable of. And I kind of feel like, you know, in most years, if you get to the river right around there, anything can happen totally you know in the last one you might even win um some years but it's uh 
that was my goal. And, and I felt like I executed really well, but I was, I was having like severe energy swings nutritionally. And that's because I was kind of just, I was doing the same thing that got me sick at black Canyon, but just for longer. Um, and that's just my, my youth. And I think hundred milers Western States was my second time. My first one was Havelina, which time-wise isn't that long of yeah. a Havelina of a hundred miles. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I am hoping to apply the, the heat management tactics that I've learned from, from Havelina and from States uh, last year um, to, to, you know, improve upon my finish th- this year. I mean, it would be great if ultimately the sun didn't set on me and I finished in the daylight. Yeah. Um, but I really just want to take a step forward because I think that that 14th place last year was just a couple hours shy of what I'm truly capable of. I think that's smart, man. Just view it as an opportunity to take a step forward. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to completely swing for the fences on this one and, you know, behave as if this is a once in a lifetime opportunity because, yeah, you know, put together a really solid one. You have the talent to compete for the win or for the podium, but, you know, just put yourself in, in a position to be successful. And that's when good things happen, as you learned at Canyons last weekend. Yeah. Cole, let's wrap up with a couple of introspective philosophical questions for you. I like to do this with a lot of our guests recently. Also, it's led to some awesome answers. Each one of them is different. I think each one of them carries a special significance with our listeners. First one is, who is one person that you admire inside or outside of sports? It could be living or dead. And why is it that you admire that person? Um, well, I, I mean, I think I got to say my grand, my grandpa, who's no longer with us, you know, he was my biggest fan. Um, he essentially raised me while my mom was at work. You know, he, he, one time he, he, uh, he saw me in little league, not run through first base, like as hard as I could, I like jogged or walked down there or something. And he got really upset at me and he just really wanted me to, to give 101% to everything that I did in life, if it was school or sports or work or relationships. I mean, so when I started running, you know, he wasn't only at every race, but he would try to follow me around the back roads of Oregon in his truck, like a weirdo and like crew me. And I wasn't even doing that long of runs when I started running. Uh, And he was so proud of me when I first won a state championship, he got like a, like a silhouette plastered on the back of his truck of me running. And it was so embarrassing, but, uh, he, he never, uh, he unfortunately never got to see me run a professional race, but, um, I just admire him because he embodied sacrifice and hard work. He was a very stoic individual and, uh, you know, times were different. He chose not to pursue sports. He probably would have been a great athlete being a, a strong country boy, but, uh, you know, he chose to, to support his family and, you know, he worked for the county for a long time and never, never missed a day, never showed up late. And that's the kind of uh, attitude that I've tried to bring to my, to my own running career. Beautiful, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. Final question. What is one truth that you've learned about yourself or about life in general through your participation in sport? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's never easy you know, and it's never guaranteed. Nobody ever promised us that. Um, you got to work for everything that you desire. And, and if you, if, if you don't have to work hard, then why, why did you even desire it in the first place? Um, my, my old coach, Ryan Gelfi, he, he told me nothing worthwhile comes easy. And, you know, it just makes it that much sweeter once you finally reach that mountaintop after several shortcomings. I, I think that, um, essentially the recipe is just relentless hard work and having a short-term memory and ultimately being grateful to God that suffering that you had that suffering because days like last weekend at canyons is what he's preparing you for. Um, yeah. I love that, man. It's never fucking easy. And then when you have the breakthrough, you got to understand this is impermanent. It is fleeting. It never stops. The work never stops. You never arrive. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm not planning on stopping here. It's just, it's just how I am. I can't stop. I won't stop. I, I I respect how hard this golden ticket was to achieve. It took a lot of blood, sweat and tears and Canyons 2023. 
it's going to have a special place in my heart forever, but it'll be on its special little shelf uh, because right now I got to focus on states. Hell yeah. Cole Watson, congratulations on this amazing victory. Look forward to seeing you back in Palisades Tahoe in eight weeks time. Thank you. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you too. There you have it, folks. Thank you so much to Cole. I put a bunch of stuff in the show notes so you can check it out now. Cole's Instagram and Strava accounts, give him a follow. Drop a DM of good luck at Western States. I also link to the training video Ryan made about Cole's last workout before the race. It's pretty special watching it now, knowing that Cole was on the cusp of this big victory. Very cool stuff. Big thank you to our sponsor, Speedland. Run speedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off. Gnarly Nutrition, go gnarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off and try that new salted margarita gnarly hydrate. HVMN, visit hvmn.com and use code FREETRAIL20 for 20% off the Ketone IQ supplement. Appreciate you all for listening. Love you dearly. It means a lot to have you here. We'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.